All right. Good to see everybody here on this wonderful afternoon of September. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. 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 Uh, I have been preaching a message series, a sermon series on finances, wealth and poverty. And today I'm going to be continuing that. And just quickly to review the first three messages. The first message I preached was called How to Steward Financial Prosperity. And I talked about how it is about stewardship and not ownership. Everything you have, money, possessions, property, it all belongs to God. As God is the creator of all things. He is the owner of all things. And yes, God gives us the right to have private property. But he always reminds us that it is he who gives us the power to produce wealth. And therefore, everything we do with our possessions, God has a say in it. Because he is the owner and we are simply stewards. I talked about also how it is about expectation of God's goodness and blessing rather than a sense of entitlement to those things. So that if ever God blesses you, you could be thankful for it. But when he doesn't, bless you or he delays or he doesn't bless you in the ways you hoped that you never get uh, uh, upset or aggressive at God because you have no sense of entitlement to those things. Everything is a result of the cross of Jesus Christ and every good thing that God gives you, he gives you because of grace. And I talked about how we cannot have a sense of entitlement to God's grace. Those things are things that God gives out of his goodness. We can have an expectation for it, but not a sense of entitlement. That's why uh, the man Job in the Old Testament was able to confess, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, but may his name be blessed. He was able to bless God and not sin, even though he lost all of his uh, family, all of his property. He was able to do that because he did not have a sense of entitlement to all those blessings that God had given him. My second message, I talked about the social mobility of the saints. We have a call to impact metropolitan cities. Amen? Amen. And we cannot do that without having a social mobility upwards. And I talked about how this ambition is not inherently evil. In fact, God expects us to take the talents and minas that he's given to us. And not to bury them, but to multiply it for his glory. To bury them is not just lazy But the parables show us that it is just plain wicked. With those blessings, there is a responsibility. God has blessed us with a purpose. We are blessed to be a blessing. Amen? Amen. And no matter what social class we reach, the gospel demands that we also always have a social mobility downwards. In the incarnation, Jesus made the greatest social mobility downwards to our broke and bankrupt spiritual state. And he, and he came to us and he died on the cross so that we can be rich in every way. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And so Jesus, his incarnation as the greatest social mobility downwards, The gospel itself demands that we never become stuck-up snobs. 
spoiled rich brats. We ought always to be able to associate with those of whatever social class, whatever income level, whatever race or ethnicity. We got to guard our hearts from that because we're all, we can all be uh, susceptible to that kind of prejudice. That was my second message, the social mobility of the saints. The last message I preached about two weeks ago, it's called Opa Gangnam Style. <laughs> For all the non-Koreans, it's Gangnam, not Gangnam. <laughs> I'm watching all these white reporters saying Gangnam Style. It's like Gangnam, you'll get it right. <clears throat> In that message, I talked about how Jesus said, be on your guard against all covetousness. Our purpose and meaning cannot be found in money. Money is a good servant, but it is a terrible master. Jesus says a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I talked about how covetousness is sin. It is foolishness. It is deceitful. And Jesus said the deceitfulness of riches can choke the word of God from bearing fruit in our lives. We've got to guard ourselves against covetousness. Actually, I talked about how Colossians 3.5 and Ephesians 5.5 go further and say that covetousness is idolatry. In covetousness, you not only long for the things of your neighbor, but you may devote yourself to it like one would devote themselves to God. And the Bible condemns this as idolatry. Covetousness, I talked about how it manifests in two ways in our culture. Materialism. And miserliness. I talked about how uh, the explosive popularity of this music video, Opa Gangnam Style, has just gone global. It's all over the world. What people don't understand is, Psy is actually communicating a satirical message wrapped in humor. The song is exposing the unhealthy obsession that Koreans have with materialism. Koreans have been deceived into coveting the luxurious Gangnam lifestyle. So much so that they are willing to spend recklessly to have it. And so in the video, it looks like he's on a nice beach. But when the camera zooms out, he's just in a children's playground. It, it looks like um, he's in a nice sauna. It zooms out. And it's a ghetto mogoktan with gangsters from the neighborhood. And the song is really a satirical message in there. Koreans have been deceived into coveting this luxurious Gangnam lifestyle so much that they are just not being able to pay their bills. They're going into incredible massive debt to give off the impression that they're living this Gangnam lifestyle. But it's all just an illusion. The reality is many of them can't afford it. And they think it will bring happiness because in materialism, it promises that if you have these possessions, it will bring you happiness. In miserliness, it says if you have these possessions, it will give you security. But both are rooted in deception. Materialism, a greed in spending. Miserliness, a greed in saving. But both of these things are rooted in deception. Because both cannot deliver what it promises. No matter how much money you save, it won't give you security. Because what if an earthquake hits? What are you going to do about the earthquake? 
What if some guy named Madoff runs off with all of your retirement savings? $1.5 million. Miserliness cannot deliver security like it promises. Materialism cannot deliver happiness like it promises. In fact, it was interesting. This past week, a newspaper article came out talking about the level of happiness. Uh, I think it's in each country or was it a city? I forget. It was either country or city. But they studied the happiness levels. I think it was cities. Was it cities? I want to say it was cities. Anyway, who cares, right? <laughs> cities or countries, something like that. But Korea was ranked one of the lowest countries in the OECD of the economic, you know, well-developed countries. Korea had one of the lowest happiness ratings out of all these countries. Doesn't that tell you something? Koreans might be living in luxury or they might be faking luxury. Both are not happy. Because possessions cannot deliver happiness. Can I get an amen? Today, I'm going to talk about the rights of the poor. After you hear this message, you will have a responsibility to it. If you turn a blind eye from this day forth, you will be guilty of a much greater sin than as before. So turn with me to Proverbs chapter 29 if you're there. Proverbs 29 verse 7. We'll start with this. Today's message is meant to be applied right away. Jesus said, don't be just hearers of the word, be doers of it. It is the fool who hears the word, turns away and does not apply it to his life. It's like building on sand rather than rock. Today's message is supposed to be applied. Look at Proverbs 29 verse 7. We'll we'll start with this. I'm going to read in the ESV. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. Everybody say rights of the poor. poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. A righteous man understands the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. Hey, turn those things off when it comes. Oh. All right. Sorry. Yeah, a couple of phone calls. All right. <clears throat> now, does anyone have any idea what the rights of the poor look like? Did you even know that the poor have rights? You, do you ever go to a poor person that says, uh, you, know, you know, sir, did you know that you have rights? Let me read you your rights right now. You have the right to beg. You have the right to get a dollar. I mean, do you know what the Bible is talking about here? The rights of the poor? Very few young people do. Because it takes a studying, a research into the scriptures to pull out and to understand the rights of the poor. And we're going to do that together today. The rights of the poor are spelled out clearly in the Mosaic law. When I say Mosaic, I'm not talking about Mosaic. I'm talking about Moses. (laughs) All right, just in case you're all wondering. Mosaic law. Now, it must be said that the Mosaic economic laws were given in a context of an agrarian society. 
meaning it was an agricultural-based society. And I do not believe that these laws are binding on us. But the spirit of the law most certainly applies to us today. So in effect, we have a greater responsibility than those Jews in the Old Testament to these laws. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's like when Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have, you have read, you have, you, have, uh, you know that it is written, do not commit adultery. But even if you look at a woman with a, uh, with, with a lustful thought, with lustful intent, you're guilty of adultery in your heart. You have heard that it is written, do not murder. And everybody's like, oh, I'm safe from that. I ain't murder nobody. And Jesus said, if you hate your brother from your heart, you're guilty of murder already. That's what it means. There's the letter of the law and there's the spirit of the law. The why, the meaning, the heart behind the law. We Christians on this side of the cross, we have a greater responsibility to understand his law and to uphold the spirit of it, not just the letter. All right, so it's a big obligation I'm going to put out to y'all tonight, today. So check this out. Turn to Deuteronomy 24. We'll start with this. You're going to have to keep the first five books of the Bible open. We'll flip through a few, through a few passages here. The first five books of the Bible. Traditionally, Moses is the author. So when the, when the Jews say the law, they're talking about the first five books of the Bible. You guys feel me? Torah, right? It's the law. (coughs) Let's look at Deuteronomy 24, verse 19 through 21. Deuteronomy 24, verse 19 to 21. When you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. Meaning if you drop something, you are not to go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, like the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. Meaning you can only harvest it one pass. You're not allowed two, three, four passes. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather grapes of your vineyard, you should not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. The first set of laws that applies to the rights of the poor are called gleaning laws. Everybody say gleaning. Gleaning. These gleaning laws are, are harvesting laws where God specifically... Tells the Jews, tells the Hebrews how they are to harvest crops. And the way they are to harvest crops is you just get one pass through the field. If you drop something and you know you dropped it, you're not to pick it up. In this way, there will be plenty for foreigners and and widows and orphans to come at that field. That's the only way that they can feed themselves. Because in that social society... In that social society, in that society, those three kinds of people were the most vulnerable. 
Look at Leviticus chapter 19. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19. Verses 9 to 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. All right. God is... uh, pretty emphatic about this he says this is exactly how you are to harvest and you are to leave portions of the field you you are you are it says here you are not to harvest right up to the edge so there was actually portions of the field that the lord said you do not harvest that area and whatever gets dropped whatever you don't pick up on that first pass you leave it Look at verse 22 in that same chapter. Oh, wait. What is that? All right. Forget 22. All right. All right. All right. That's enough. All right. What was that? Sorry. It must be a typo. <clears throat> so I learned this in my wealth and poverty class. The rights of the poor included these gleaning laws that put a limit on a person's harvesting ability and it gave the poor the right to claim what was remained. Now, how would this apply to us today since none of us harvest grapes? Some of y'all may have. (laughs) I've never harvested nothing except maybe some tomato vines in the front yard. How would this apply to us today? Well, let me give you some examples. Every month you get a paycheck. What percentage of that paycheck is untouchable? 10% because it's a tithe to the Lord. It's a constant reminder that God is the one who gives you the ability to produce will. You better not forget it. But how many of you also apportion the rest of that paycheck just a portion of that paycheck as untouchable for the sake of the poor. For the sake of the orphan. For the sake of, I don't know, a woman trying to come out of human trafficking. For the sake of North Korean refugees. Now there's a lot of poor around us. Don't think the poor aren't around us. For the immigrant. Uh, a couple of years ago we had uh, Filipino girls that were working in brothels in some of these um, uh, military bases, and one of our one of our sisters she went in and she reached out to them and brought them out to church, and both of them were pregnant by the time they started coming out to our church, and we prayed for them. They got really powerfully touched by the Lord. They started really opening up their hearts to the gospel. And when they got full term, we collected money in the church to help pay for the cost of having a baby. Because you know what? Having a baby is expensive. And so we did that. I thought it was a beautiful act. 
But how many of you guys, you plan that kind of money and put it aside? Because in the Old Testament, not only, this is, this is on top of the tithe, by the way. They harvest this, this amount they got, they tithe from that. But the amount that, that, that remains or that portion that's untouchable, they don't even think that that's theirs. It all belongs to God and, it, and the poor have the rights to it. But how many of you guys, you think about your paycheck that way? How many of you guys think about your bonus that way? When you get that bonus, oh, holla, I got my bonus. I'm going to book my trip to Phuket. I'm going to go get that tag watch I've been eyeing. Get that Louis Vuitton, my, my 12 Louis Vuitton bag. But five of them are fake, so you know, that ain't more to count. <coughs> I don't know, how do you think about your bonus? If you really want to be a righteous man who understands the rights of the poor, we've got to remember the spirit of this law. God is looking to how we are stewarding this today. Second kind of laws. Go to Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7 through 11. 15, verses 7 through 11. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor, if any of your ta- in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him And lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eyes look grudgingly on your poor brother. And you give him nothing. And he cries to the Lord against you. And you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely. And your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Second kinds of laws that pertain to the rights of the poor are lending laws. Lending laws. <coughs> Lending laws put a demand on Israel to give interest-free loans to a fellow Hebrew who was in economic trouble. There were specific restrictions in other places in the law. There were specific restrictions against taking a person's necessities as security for a loan. For example, a person's cloak. Okay? You are not to, you'll be like, what do you got? Well, I don't have anything. Well, you got your cloak. Give me your cloak as security that you're going to pay me back. That was forbidden by God. Why? Because these laws, these lending laws were there to safeguard the dignity of the borrower. And so, you know, some of us were a little bit more, you know, meticulous about getting our money back. You know, we're kind of like gangster mafia about it. You know, hey, where's my money? 
Hey, you threw in for that birthday gift. You ain't pay up yet. Give me my money. I'm like, I'll admit, I'm like the harshest when it comes to collecting money. And I'm the most forgetful when it comes to giving, paying people back. <clears throat> I'll be real. I'll be real. So, for example, whenever I get like, if I do a birthday group gift, I organize it. Everybody pays by a certain deadline. <laughs> or I don't put your name on that birthday card. But then when other people do these group gifts, like Myung-Hwa did a good gift, good group gift for somebody. And uh, she's not here. Pastor Myung-Hwa. And uh, I paid her back yesterday. It was like two months after. <laughs> <coughs> it, wasn't, it was like a month after. I'm sorry. But anyway. Um, some of us are more meticulous about making sure we collect. But the, the Lord your God forbids you from collecting or taking a security on that loan in such a way that you hurt the dignity of that person. So you are to lend freely. If you really look at this uh, law, I'll go over a concept called moral proximity. Uh, we'll go over that because it's reflected in this law as well. It's called moral proximity. I'll go over that later. All right. So there's these lending laws. So that the poor have rights to get a loan from you. This is why Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, if somebody asks you for your coat, or what, what, what do you say? I'll go to Matthew chapter 5. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 5 for a second. <coughs> Matthew chapter 6. All right. Yeah, there's, there's a, a verse here. Now, I'm not going to look for it. There's a verse here that says, Jesus says, if your brother asks. Huh? 5 verse 4? 540. Yeah, good. Thank you, Chris Kim. Very sharp eye. Yeah, look at verse, chapter 5 verse 40. This is in the context of the eye for eye, tooth for tooth law. Jesus said, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And verse 40, this is talking about the Mosaic law. Look at this. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you or who asks from you in other translations. And do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. Jesus is not making, creating things up on the spot. He's talking about the Mosaic law. Give to the one who asks. Do not refuse the one who's trying to borrow from you. If they're just borrowing to manipulate and take advantage of you, obviously you don't say yes to that. But this is in the context of the Mosaic law and the rights of the poor. Usually when somebody asks, they're humbling themselves and saying, I'm in a bad situation and I need your help to get back on my feet. Will you lend me this amount of money? I'll pay it back. A third kind of mosaic laws were for slavery. <coughs> so I'll sum this one up. If a Hebrew became extremely poor and sold him or herself into slavery to repay debt, a fellow Hebrew was commanded by the law to release that person in the seventh year. 
So it was commanded by God that that slavery does not continue for a person's lifetime. It was just long enough for you to get enough money for your family so you can get back on your feet. And slavery back then looked different than the slavery that we knew in the colonial American period. All right, I'm not talking about going on a continent and then rounding people up on a ship, taking them across the ocean, and then doing all kinds of horrible things to them. Ancient Near East, there were all kinds of slavery systems and slavery laws that looked very different. There's a lot more dignity involved. But regardless, if you sold yourself, it's almost like being like a butler. You sell yourself and you serve as a butler in somebody's house. You could not, you, the Lord forbid it for that person to be in that slavery for indefinitely. It was limited. Fourth kind of laws were property laws for land. Uh, <coughs> I'll sum this up for you too. Leviticus 25 talks about the year of Jubilee. You guys know what the Jubilee year is all about? Jubilee is seven times seven. What's seven times seven? 49. Seven comes from Sabbath, seventh day, right? And there was this, these laws that God commanded that slaves be let go on the seventh year, such and such and such. Well, if you were really poor and you sold your land in order to get back on your feet, on the year of Jubilee, that land was to be returned to its original owner. Now, think about what we have today in our Western system. We don't have anything like that. If you get poor and you gotta, you lose your mortgage, you lose your house, well, tough luck. Good luck working at McDonald's and getting back up on your feet. But God, he didn't do things like that. He says, all right, you're having a real tough time. All right, you got to sell your land. All right, go do it. But check this out. On the year of Jubilee, it's all going to come back to you. So you and your family don't have to be in poverty generation after generation. And that the rich don't get richer. There are clear limits that God has put. So gleaning laws, lending laws, slavery laws, and land laws. These four types of laws clearly define the rights of the poor. (coughs) I'm thinking, how can we apply, um, I don't know, how can we apply... Well, lending law, we can apply, right? It's real easy. Somebody is like, we're in trouble. You can give them an interest-free loan. And if they really are in a lot of trouble and they can't pay it back, you don't go up to them and say, go give me all you got. All right, that's like the parable of the merciful servant. You should be able to forgive even a financial debt. Never mind emotional debt where you get hurt. You, you're, of course, you're supposed to forgive. But we're called even to forgive financial debts. You know, one of the... One of the things that, if you, if you study economics, one of the things that will really help poor countries get back on their feet is a concept called cancellation of debt. It's been done before. Maybe, maybe not many times, but it's been done before. Where countries like the United States, they give a loan to another country much smaller, like Mozambique. Like, South Africa is not that small. Let me give, give me a smaller country. Togo. Okay, Togo. <laughs> and that Togo started off by just borrowing 
you know, $50 billion. And their country is really doing bad. But then they, get, they can't repay it. So the interest keeps accumulating. Within 10 years, that $50 billion debt is now $1 trillion. And they're constantly having to repay it. It's going to take that country forever to be able to repay that debt. And it's going to keep them in a perpetual state of poverty. So one thing that economists would encourage more prosperous countries to do is cancel the debt with maybe certain conditions. Like cancel it in such a way that that country can get back on their feet. We can do that same thing for other individuals. If they're having that hard of a time, sometimes the better thing to do is just to cancel that debt. I know this is like new, new concepts for y'all. You're like, why would I ever cancel a debt? <laughs> Sally May don't let me cancel my debt. <laughs> Sally May is a college student loan uh, company. <laughs> Sally May is not a real person, by the way. <laughs> Fannie Mae, Sally May, they ain't real people, all right? Researchers try to look for friendly uh, elderly names, and they came up with Fannie Mae and Sally Mae. I'm serious. It's market research. These aren't real people. Fannie Mae won't let me cancel my debt. Why should I cancel the debt with somebody else? Citibank won't cancel my debt. My, my mortgage bank won't let, cancel my debt. Why should I cancel anybody else's? Well, here's the thing. You have been canceled. You have received the greatest cancellation of debt ever. And he who has freely received needs to learn how to freely give. (coughs) All right. So all these laws provided rights for the poor so that they wouldn't be forced to live in dependency or slavery indefinitely. But so that they can have opportunities to get back on their own feet. That is the divine way. That is God's way. One author put it this way. These laws severely limited the degree to which ownership and control over wealth could become concentrated into just a few hands. When these laws are properly exercised and obeyed, you don't have a huge wealth gap. If I were to sum it up, I would sum it up like this. The Mosaic law, the scriptures, condemns social Darwinism. Now, can someone explain to me what social Darwinism is? What's Darwinism? Survival of the fittest, right? It's this, it's this theory made by this guy named Darwin, Charles Darwin, that animals have evolved through the thousands and millions of years, and it is the strongest animals that have survived. And so we... Sometimes we take that concept and we apply it into society. And so when a poor person who used to have a business goes bankrupt and your business is doing well and that person starts to live on the streets, social Darwinism will say, oh, well, tough luck. Survival of the fittest. It's too bad. That's not my, that's not my fault. That's not my responsibility. This is the way it is. It's the strongest that are supposed to rise anyway. Scripture condemns social Darwinism. It is not about the survival of the fittest. The poor are not left up to the mercy of the rich. The Lord God himself protects the poor with clear rights that are provided in Scripture. And a righteous man must understand the rights of the poor. 
The wicked man knows, knows he doesn't have such knowledge. We are not the wicked. We are not numbered to be with the wicked. We are the righteous, brothers and sisters. So in the Old Testament, when the prophets, they would indict Judah and Israel and other nations for their wicked sins. Uh, if you go to Isaiah chapter 10, here, I'll read that for you real quick. Isaiah chapter 10. Is that right? Isaiah chapter 10, verse 1 and 3. <coughs> Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice. And to rob the poor of my people of their right. Their widows may be their spoil. That widows may be their spoil. And that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment? If the ruin that will come. In the ruin that will come from afar. To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? What is God saying here? As he is indicting Israel. As he is indicting the nation of Judah, he says, you have been guilty of heinous sins, idolatry. You've committed spiritual adultery against me. But not only that, you have oppressed the poor and the needy. You have robbed them of their rights. And so the Lord says, well, what will you do now when my judgment comes against you? Who is going to get your wealth? I mean, God's so adamant. It's not just about idolatry that these nations were judged. They clearly abandoned the rights of the poor. And what I'm trying to say to y'all today is today the church, the church's condition is not that different. Why? Because there's so much covetousness, materialism, miserliness in the church. Covetousness, which is idolatry. And what happens when people are guilty of idolatry? One of the first signs that you're guilty of idolatry is you start forsaking the rights of the poor. And what I see in the church today is we don't have men and women at every income level upholding the rights of the poor. People are just looking out for themselves, their own family. People don't make financial budgets and plans with the poor budgeted in. And what I'm telling you, do that these patterns are the patterns that Israel and Judah were experiencing right before they got judged. These are serious matters. <laughs> the Lord also in Isaiah 5. He condemns those. Let's go to Isaiah 5. We've got to see this as well. It's going to help for people who are going to eventually make a lot of money. Verse 8 and 9. Isaiah 5, verse 8 and 9. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room. Meaning like they're building mansions and nice houses, all this stuff. And you are made to dwell there. You are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing. Surely many houses shall be desolate. 
large and beautiful mansions and houses will be without inhabitant. What is the Lord saying? The Lord is appalled by the great concentrations of wealth that he sees in the land of Israel. He says, I don't mind that you live in this nice house. But how come you're living, you have all this concentration of wealth and there's so much poor living among you in the city and in the country. I don't mind you living in a nice mansion. But what proportion of that income are you giving to the poor? How are you upholding the rights of the poor? And in God's eyes, when he saw Israel, they were doing nothing about it. In fact, they were oppressing. When you ignore the rights of the poor, not only do you, do you ignore them, but you are oppressing them. Because God has ordained you to be the means through which they get back on their feet. God gives you blessing after blessing, paycheck after paycheck, job after job, promotion after promotion. God gives it to you and he wants, he's ordained you to help the poor get back on their feet. And so when you ignore them, you are actually oppressing them. You guys hear what I'm saying? God does not take the rights of the poor lightly and neither should we. Faithful Christian stewardship involves understanding and upholding the rights of the poor. In fact, the scripture says that when we are generous to the poor, we are actually lending to the Lord. So there's even a reward for those who do good to the poor. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deeds. I don't know about you, but if you lend to God, all right, I, God, does, he will never default on any payments, okay? He will make sure that you get repaid. And by, by the way, you can't outgive God. So whatever you give, it will be poured out upon your lap, overflowing. And so, we got to uphold the rights of the poor. Everybody say, let's uphold the rights of the poor. Let's uphold the rights of the poor. Now, we got to be careful how we identify the poor. Okay, the simple way to think about the poor is the homeless person begging for money on the street. Uh -uh, uh Uh-uh, uh-uh. Too easy, too simplistic. The Proverbs warns the simple person. Don't be so simple. Be wise and live. Being simple is equivalent to foolishness. We can't be simple in identifying who the poor are. The poor are not just the beggars on the street, although they are. And mind you, whenever you see them and you have a little bit of change, you have a little bit of money, whatever, whatever you have, you want to give, you should give to them. Personally, and this will be in, a, in, a, in next week's message or the, or the message after that, I'm going to talk about how to really help the poor. I'm going to talk about that because Christians, they don't understand this very well. And uh, there's this book called Toxic Charity that I'm going to go over with you guys. It's a, powerful, it's a powerful teaching. You should be here for that. So I don't believe in, like, giving a poor person on the street, like, $5,000. Hey, here you go, sir. I don't want to see you ever again on the street. <laughs> that ain't going to work. All right, just give him $5, give him 50 cents, whatever. Right, so he can go get that meal for that day. Yeah, poor definitely includes that. 
you have to use the biblical definition of the poor. The biblical definition always included widows, oppressed, uh, the, the orphan, and the foreigner, the immigrants. What do, America do, what do America do with all those foreigners, all those Mexicans that illegally crossed the border? What do America do? America used to embrace them. America used to give them a hope. But now America is hunting them down and treating them like criminals. God's judgment, I believe, is going to fall on America without proper repentance in certain areas. One of them being how they mistreat the foreigner. I identify with those Mexicans. I used to be one when I first arrived in America and I did not have a permanent residence. You know what I mean? If I reached the age of 19 and then you arrest my parents and then you tell me I can't go to college, I'll punch you to your face. I'm freaking American, fool. I grew up on the streets of Philadelphia. What do you know about America? What do you know about the fabric of America? You might be white, but that don't mean you're American. You might be black, that don't mean you're American. I grew up in America. I'm American. You know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, I, I think it's a real shame how it's become a political issue. And all politicians do is waver back and forth in order to get the right votes. But they never come up with a permanent solution. But the biblical definition always included widows, orphans, and foreigners. But what do these three represent? They represent the most vulnerable in our society. You know, widows today are not as vulnerable as widows back then. They may be a bit, but not as much. Because women are allowed to get educations these days. They can get their own jobs. I mean, a widow today, man, they can live real well. I mean, anyway... So we're not talking technically about widows. We're talking about any person that fits in these three categories of the ancient Near East. Anyone who is vulnerable. Who are the vulnerable here in the city of Seoul? <laughs> what? What? What'd you say? Huh? Us? Are you vulnerable? Here, come up afterwards. I'll give you a little help. No, <laughs> let's talk about people who are really vulnerable. All right, let's start with the children. You know, punks, you know, let's pay attention. Okay, t- check this out. Little orphans in orphanages in Korea are some of the most vulnerable people in this entire country. You know why? Because in Korean culture, blood is thicker than water. It's all about having family and having a pure family line. It is just a traditional Korean cultural belief that's been passed down generation after generation. So it's all about family. So if you don't have, you don't know who your parents are, or you grew up in an orphanage, you're not going to be able to get the jobs that everybody else gets. Or, or it makes it very difficult. You're not going to be able to marry. Because a lot of Christian parents who serve as elders and deaconesses in their churches will say no to that marriage because of your background. If you're an orphan, if you grew up in an orphanage, they are truly vulnerable. And so things like the Seeds of Hope Scholarship, that's stuff that we should rally around. Who are some other vulnerable people in the city? Ethnic Chinese. 
everyone say 조선족. 조선족 people, they are the largest army of migrant workers in Korea. There are millions and millions of them here in the city of Seoul and around the surrounding areas. All those women you see at Incheon Airport cleaning your bathrooms, many of them are Chosunjoks. They are ethnic Koreans that have Chinese citizenship. But if you know the, if you know the history of Chosunjok people, because I, I happen to go across the, into the Korea-China border, North Korea-Korea, sorry, China-North Korea border, I got to visit a couple times. And I got to study the history of that area. You know that, that area was actually Korean land? After the Korean War, the Chinese were like, hey, you know what? I'm going to take some of this because we helped you out. So they just, they just took all this land. And the people were displaced. Those who found themselves on the Chinese side of the border, now they were considered Chinese citizens. And so they, they still eat kimchi and stuff like that. But the Chinese have still marginalized this people group. I, I, I went and taught at a Chosunjok elementary school. Okay? I mean, I've seen poverty. I mean, tell me about poverty. Go to India, go to Cambodia, go to Davao, Philippines. I mean, there is poverty. There is stinking trash and sewage. Stereo surround sound everywhere. I mean, there's poverty. But when I went to this Chosunjo Elementary School, man, they were living in poverty. When I told these kids, take out your notepad and bring out a pen and let me start teaching you some English. Half of them didn't have pens. And almost all of them didn't even have a notebook. So how do you learn? Doesn't the school supply you with something? Don't your parents give you something? And they said, no, we just, we don't. How do you, how do you get an elementary education without having books? Without having a notebook? Without having a pen? Okay, those kids are living in dire poverty. And on top of that, most of their parents have moved to Korea to work and find jobs and send paychecks home. But a lot of times, a lot of times, these kids aren't seeing those paychecks somehow. The grandma or the aunt or whatever, they're eating it up, going to Nordabangs. I don't know what they're doing with that money, but them kids are not getting that money. So a lot of these kids, man, they have it real tough. Most of them, they never get to go to college. You want to talk about marginalized people? You talk about Chosunjo. At least the Mexicans in Mexico, they, ha- they can have a future and a hope if they avoid all the drugs and and gunfire. And I mean, there's a lot of drug killings. And let's be real. I'm watching the news. But at least in Mexico, you're a Mexican citizen. And if you really work hard, you might be able to, you know, make a better life for yourself. Not for the Chosen Joke people. China, doesn't, China says, you're not, you're not one of us. North Korea says, you're not one of us. South Korea says, you're dirt. I heard that a North Korean refugee kid, he told me that he was going onto a bus. And he didn't know where that bus was going. So he, when the bus driver opened up the door, he asked the bus driver, where does this bus go? But he had a certain accent. And the bus driver thought that he had a Chosunjok accent. And the bus driver slammed the door in his face. Listened to the question and slammed the door in his face. Okay. That's the kind of marginalization that these people face. These people are vulnerable. They are the poor among us. Women trapped in the sex industry. These are some of the most vulnerable people in this country. Either they're there because they 
didn't have a strong family, or they're there because of massive credit card debt accumulated from the Gangnam lifestyle. Some of these women, they get tricked to boarding a plane to go to Australia, to go to America, to go to Mexico, to go to Canada. The moment they arrive, their passports are confiscated. They're told to work. They're broken indifferently because they use shame and the degradation of dignity to get these girls broken. It's not like in, um, you know, in Central Europe where they just break the girls in and just rape them and drug them. For Korean girls, I mean, you, you got to do it differently. So these gangsters will say, Here, here's a job. It pays $4 an hour. And here's another job. It pays $50 an hour. And by the way, you owe us money for the airline ticket that you just took to come here. These are your charges. You owe me $8,000. And the person's already like $30,000 in debt at home. So what do you think the girl's going to choose? A lot of these women, man, they, they have nobody voicing their case. They are trapped in enormous injustice. And God's people, we got to start to uphold the rights of these poor. You know, and, and you know, I hope that somebody, the Lord moves upon somebody in this house to eventually start up. Well, you got you to investigate the laws, right? You got to work with the government. You can't just start a safe house or something like that or a recovery house. I mean, you have pimps coming in and beating you up every night, right? But you got to work with the government somehow to have phases in which you pass certain laws so you make it difficult for these pimps to operate and eventually you provide ways for these girls to get out. Now, I hope that we do something like that. Pastor Eddie was telling me about at OEM how he is working with certain people that are already doing that, helping girls get a new life. That's not an easy ministry. But man, that is the heart of God. So let's define the poor very carefully. I would define the poor as simply those who are the most vulnerable and those who are in abject poverty. Now I'm going to close my message with a concept called moral proximity. In upholding the rights of the poor... (coughs) Martin Luther and John Wesley, the reformers, they taught a concept called moral proximity. And I want you to understand what it is. It comes out of um, different Bible passages. We looked at one of them earlier. If you look at Galatians 6.10, it says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The oikos of faith. What's that talking about? The Apostle Paul is writing to the Galatians and saying, let's do good to everybody, but especially to those in the church. Especially those in your covenant community. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew covenant community was the equivalent to today's church. You guys hear what I'm saying? Everybody is in covenant with each other. Everyone's circumcised. That means everyone's in covenant to each other. In the church, we also have a covenant community. Where we are committed to God and we're committed to each other. So moral proximity says that when you uphold the rights of the poor and you give and you do good to others. You place priority on who gets help first. And so the reformers thought it was helpful to say uh, you should first, you should make sure that you're helping yourself. And you should make sure you're on your feet. If you're dirt poor, you shouldn't try to be all helping others all crazy and recklessly. All right. It's going to just make you more poor. 
Anyway, you should take care of yourself. Uh, but other than that, your family, that's the inner circle. The church, that's the next inner circle. And then to all those who are created in the image of God. That's the outermost circle. So when we place priority on who gets what and who we should focus on, who gets priority, moral proximity helps. Because if you just look at the world and go, let me just start helping everybody. And you look at the need and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't do nothing about this. You're just going to feel overwhelmed. But when you understand the constant moral proximity, you start with your family, the family of God, and then all those created in the image of God. Now, there's one exception to this. And that is when we have times of emergency and crisis. Earthquake, flood, tsunami. When those things happen, we have to shelve moral proximity, put it to the side. And we got to look at things more deontologically, more dutifully. We have an obligation and a duty to help those people who are in crisis and great and urgent need. You guys feel me? It's like the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? You help the one who's beat up and bleeding and lying naked on the road. That's, that's when you shelve moral proximity. You don't go, well, he's of a different race. He's done to go to my church and he's not part of my family. So let me go help them out first and I'll come back later. That's foolishness. And so there are exceptions to the moral proximity. You have to be a thinking Christian about this. So right now we're going to have the praise team come up. We're going to close with praise today. Hallelujah. Oh man, I thought I had 40 minutes. How did it turn into 57? Oh, man. All right, let's still do the praise. All right, let's do some praise. Let's all stand to our feet. I want everyone to repeat after me. The righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. I am blessed to be a blessing. I will lend and not borrow. I will be the head and not the tail. I am blessed with a purpose. Amen. God bless you. I'll tell you right now. Hey, let's get some of that music going. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> Within 10 years, there's going to be a multitude of millionaires in this house. Listen to me right now. There's a multi- multitude of millionaires that are going to rise about this house. And in that day, all those, when you start seeing those millions come in, you must uphold the rights of the poor. Remember, it is the Lord your God who has blessed you. And you have a responsibility. There is a limit placed upon that bonus. There is a limit placed upon that paycheck. Do not be numbered among the wicked who just indulge and store up, stores up large concentrations of wealth and forsakes the poor and vulnerable among them. You use your money for God's purposes and He will bless those millions into billions. The increase that you will see on your life will have no limit if you remember the Lord your God.